Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm Peggy Hughes. On this episode, we feature more edited highlights from this year's festival, with excerpts from our events with wildlife TV presenter and author Kate Humble, and former British Army officer, international aid worker and spy thriller writer Simon Conway. We begin with Kate Humble, a writer and broadcaster specialising in science, wildlife and rural affairs. Kate discusses her latest book, A Year of Living Simply, a frank exploration of a stripped-back approach to life, with chair Polly Pular. Your latest book is just incredible. I really, really enjoyed it. Obviously, when I picked it up first, I thought, goodness, that's this last year, the coronavirus misery. And of course, you wrote it before that. I did. I did. It couldn't be more appropriate. Well, it's it's an odd thing, isn't it? I mean, I oddly did the bulk of the writing, although the many wonderful people that I met for inspiration, I mean, it was, and I don't know whether it's something to do with age, possibly it is, but I had this kind of creeping realisation. It wasn't a light bulb moment. It wasn't a kind of sudden thing of, oh goodness, I've got to kind of change my life completely. It was more this sort of, as I say, kind of creeping sensation that life was a little bit out of kilter. I wasn't miserable. You know, I didn't feel like I really needed to make a grand gesture or a grand change. But I was just aware that, you know, I have a lovely garden and I was never spending any time in it. You know, I love mucking out just before talking to you. You know, I was sort of mucking out my chickens and putting them to bed. And I found that the things that I really enjoy in life walking, being in nature, hanging out with my dogs, reading books, are things that I didn't have time for or wasn't kind of carving out enough time for. And I was also beginning to get more and more conscious of the things that I really wanted to do. I wanted to learn or I wanted to be less dependent on other people for fixing things, for example. And I feel so helpless when I can't screw a, a shelf to a wall or something like And I just thought it's all time. It's, and I, I'm going to, I want to just try and rebalance life. And so, as I say, it wasn't a great moment. It was just a sort of realisation. And then I suppose the catalyst was at the beginning of last year, 2019, I lost my dad and my father-in-law and the mothers of two great friends who I was very close to their mums as well, all within six weeks of each other. And that's, that is definitely the age, you know, I'm now of the age where that generation is dying. And it is a sharp reminder that you have one shot at life and if you have within your own power to make it as happy as you can, then get on with it. You know, stop waiting for somebody else to make it happy for you, I suppose. I mean, I think that's right. I think we make our own luck as well to a degree, don't we? And um, we are so busy end gaining that we don't enjoy the bit getting there, which I found extraordinary. You know, you you live in a lovely place and you're trying to finish a job, but you should be enjoying that job as you do it. I think that's absolutely right. And it just sort of interested me that I've done quite a lot of programs. There was a series that I did called Back to the Land, which was about people creating rural businesses. And I've done, you know, I've done the same thing. It's enormously hard work. It's enormously nerve wracking. But all those people that I met doing that series had done it because it was something they really wanted to do. It wasn't about making money. It was about 
happiness. It was about what made them feel content, what made them want to get up in the morning. And it didn't mean that they were sort of skating through life in this kind of haze of unrealistic joy, but it did mean that they felt somehow a bit more in control of their own destinies. And I think that's something that a lot of us feel we don't have. And that might be the kind of underlying root of just sort of gentle anxieties and stresses or an inability to seize the moment. Yes, I think that you're very clear about that in the book, about how important it is to seize the moment. (laughs) I really enjoyed um, the chapter, particularly about mending things. You made so many fantastic points about mending things and you met amazing people, the mending the cafes. Again, it was something that, that I was conscious of, that when I was a child and growing up, so if something broke, uh, you had a jolly good go at fixing it, or your dad had a good go at fixing it, or, you know, yeah, and there was always sort of pots of glue around the house that had sort of set and you could never get the lid off, you know, but you, you always tried to, if you broke a cup, you'd stick the, the handle back on. It never worked terribly well, but you'd always give it a go. And something has happened in society, and I suspect it's the curse of convenience, actually, that we, and the internet is definitely, it contributes to this, that when something breaks, instead of fixing it, we've lost the ability to repair anymore. People don't repair anymore. There used to be, you know, cobblers in every town. When I grew up, there was a little cobbler, you could go and take your shoes to be fixed. No one fixes shoes anymore, they just throw them out and get a new pair. Similarly, if a kettle breaks it's so cheap and easy to replace a kettle whereas to find someone to fix one and then pay them fairly for doing it is more or less impossible that's sort of been a creeping thing that's happened i think over my lifetime and i was on a a a work trip i was on a flight to borneo a couple of years ago and i was reading the local paper on the plane which makes me sound like i can you know i'm fluent in malaysian but i'm i'm not it was an english language paper and it was talking about this new cafe that had opened in kuala lumpur where you could go and get coffee and cake but you could also take you know your kettle that had broken or a pair of jeans that had ripped and go and learn how to fix them I thought what a brilliant idea absolutely brilliant idea and it sort of stuck with me and I sort of came back and I did a bit of research and discovered repair cafes and discovered that they had well, they were the brainchild of this remarkable Dutch woman called Martina Posma she was an environmental journalist and the thing that absolutely drove her crazy was how wasteful we are as a species and we would just throw things away and everything ends up in landfill. So to kind of make a point, she described it really as like a theatrical event in Amsterdam where she said to her friend's husband, who was the only person she knew who knew how to fix things, could we sort of do a kind of it's almost like a fixing theatre show where people bring their stuff and you and anyone else you know who can fix things, fix things. And we and, But we make it a sort of social event and a bit of a, a spectacle in a way. And it was such a success that everybody at the end of the event said, well, so when's the next one? Because we've all got things we'd like to fix, you know, at home. And she said, well, uh, there isn't a next one. It was just to kind of, to prove a point really. And they went, well, don't be ridiculous. You've proved the point. And now we all know we need this. So let's do it. And so she thought, okay. And she contacted her local community centre and they said, yeah, fine. You you know, come in every couple of weeks and, and do this repair cafe idea. Very, very quickly, the idea snowballed. And there are now 2,000 of these worldwide. And it just goes to show, this is the thing I think that, you know, we despair about the human race and, and about our impact on our home. And that's what, you know, not looking after our planet is, is it's like knocking a hole in our own roofs or not closing the windows in a storm. Mm -hmm. And yet there are pockets of people doing 
wonderful, constructive and achievable things. And that's really what I wanted this book to celebrate. All the people that I went to see were in their small way, and as I say, very attainable way, doing something that if we all joined forces and did it more, would actually make a really big difference, I think. Yeah, and you met some really superb people, didn't you? Mm. I loved when you went to meet David Wilson and the bread making. Well, you okay. went to talk to him about wheat, but that I found intriguing because I had just no idea just how bad the situation with wheat is. David is absolutely fascinating man. I've known him for, for a long time. You know, he's a, a farmer who has for the last, I would say, 35, 40 years, really pioneered a way of farming that is as kind to the environment as it is to the livestock that he rears and is as successful at rearing crops. And he's done all sorts of things like looking at really good land use, mixing up, growing orchard trees with crops in one field. So everything is about habitat for wildlife, but also making land productive, but healthy. He's like my guru, really. I, I love going and sitting in his kitchen. And I really enjoyed that description, but I also loved how you then went and you were trying to make all this different bread and you're very um very self-denigrating about your bread making i love the idea of it looking like a cow pat but I mean, mine looks like nuclear fallout you know it's just like a brick but i mean you now have mastered the art of bread making have you no if i'm absolutely honest i haven't i think it takes years i think it's like all those things you can follow a recipe and sometimes i'm at the point where i can follow a recipe and i think about jennifer burgos who was the woman i went to who actually taught me how to make a proper loaf um and i think about her saying you know don't let the dough master you and and i think about the rhythm that she talked about the kind of rocking rhythm while you're working the dough and sometimes i make a good loaf and sometimes I don't. And I think, as I say, it takes years. She had this, it was almost a kind of ma magician's touch. She could just look at the dough and go, it just needs five more minutes, or it just needs, she had this inherent understanding of how that mixture worked. And that just takes time. But it did break the kind of, I cannot make bread thing that I had in my head. You know, it's just, it's impossible for me. I only make cow pats or bricks. Um, and, now, and now sometimes I can make something that's edible, which is, which is definitely a step in the right direction. <laughs> I mean, throughout the, the book, you, you make it very clear that you're really better with a wheelbarrow and a fork mucking out than you are with an oven and, and ingredients. But though I love the fact that you were talking a lot about fresh ingredients and doing very little to good food. Now, I really related to that. If, if something is beautifully fresh, fresh and well-grown, we don't need to do much to it. And you made that very strong point. And the other thing that the book kind of charts, I suppose, is my not altogether successful attempt at making my vegetable patch a bit more productive. Although I have to say this year, second year, it was much better. But the year that I was writing the book and kind of, you know, keeping a diary of, of what I was doing, it wasn't a great success. And it's hard work growing vegetables. I mean, it really is hard work, but it is fantastically rewarding. And when I think when you combine the 
the knowledge of how hard it is to get right, particularly if you're just starting out, you know, growing. I had an allotment when I lived in London and everything seemed to grow there. But I think it was a it was a much more benign climate, whereas here, you know, I'm 300 metres up a Welsh hill. Um, and uh, yeah, it's not always quite so benign. So I think the knowledge of when you pull up a carrot and it is a carrot and it's sort of carrot shaped and carrot coloured and you just sort of wipe it on your jeans and take a bite. And it is so delicious. You think, well, I, I really don't want to muck that up. It was such hard work to get it. And you're right. I think, you know, if you do have lovely ingredients and even if you don't grow your own, going to a local farm shop or a local market garden, you know, thinking about the people who've really poured their hearts and souls into producing the food that we eat and really appreciating it. You then don't need to cover it with sauces or overcomplicated. Never understood the sort of smear and foam thing that fancy restaurants. <laughs> I like that description. It was very funny. It made me laugh. <laughs> you think this situation we find ourselves in now is going to mean that we are going to support and use more local things, which you've advocated in all your programmes. You're always saying that. And it is to me the way forward. But do you think we will or do you think we'll revert again? I think a lot of it will depend on where we live. And mm. a lot of it will depend on what we did in the past. What's been really noticeable about the community that I live in, and actually, funnily enough, I hadn't really thought about this until we went into lockdown. But we, I live in the Y Valley, so there are villages in the lower Y Valley, and there are villages all the way along with the town of Chepstow at one end and the town of Monmouth at the other, both of which have supermarkets. But actually, almost all the villages along the length of the valley have a little shop, which, as we know, is really, really unusual. And it hadn't struck me until lockdown. And I realised, gosh, you know, Redbrook's got a shop, Landogo's got a shop. Rockwear's got a shop, you know, we've got the farm, we've got two farm shops outside Chepstow. We've got a lot of these little local shops. And what was incredibly noticeable and wonderful during lockdown was how they reacted and understood their community. And they started doing deliveries to the people who were most vulnerable, who couldn't get out. Uh, they just worked out ways where it actually made more sense and was more comfortable for people and a much nicer experience for people to shop in those little shops than it was to go to the supermarket. And that seems to have continued. You know, there's one of the farm shops outside Chepstow where we sell our eggs, but they're absolutely booming. And I think people, you know, I, I was talking to Colleen who runs it and I, I said, why do you think it is? And she said, I think people did really appreciate that we really thought about what people needed and tried to respond. And small shops can do that in a way that supermarkets can't. You know, small shops can go to little producers. Small shops can look at their, their regular customers and go, well, actually, everyone wants flour. We'll just buy in more flour. Whereas a supermarket, I think, I mean, I don't know how ordering in a supermarket works, but, you know, I think that it, they, they go, it's all much bigger scale and, and therefore less easy to react. Certainly around us, it seems that people still want to shop in those small local shops and support them by way of saying thank you for for looking after everybody during lockdown yeah i think it's it's much the same in aberfeldy we had a very similar thing and we also had some of the hotel um, were all joining together and providing people over 70 with free meals every day and yeah. that went on and i mean it's just been really very heartening to see now something i really want to ask you about and something that i found the most poignant part of your book was when you talked about loneliness and you discovered such a lot about loneliness and about ways that people can get over that. We have a loneliness epidemic now, don't we, in the country? 
it seems we do and i think you know again the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment has exacerbated that but what i discovered doing the book was how many really wonderful organizations and kind of ideas are out there to help support people who are vulnerable of loneliness and one are the men's sheds. You know, I'd, I'd never heard of men's sheds before. And it was this wonderful woman, Janet, who I work with sometimes, who sort of told me about them. And I, I, I looked into them and I went to visit one in Street in Somerset. And it was, I think, that just this camaraderie. And for those, for those of you who don't know about men's sheds, it's a very, very simple idea. It actually started in Australia and it was in response to men and and. And I apologize if this is a sweep, it is a sweeping statement, um, but it does seem to generally be true that men, when they retire, find that they actually are a bit lost. You know, women tend to be more of a part of a community. I think it's just in our DNA. We, you know, we, we make an effort. We tend to be the ones who organize the sort of social things in life. If we've got children, we're the ones who've kind of done the school run. And, you know, we, we tend to be much more part and parcel of a community, whereas men tend to go to work, do their work, come back. And if their wives tell them they've got to go out, then they go out. <laughs> Otherwise, they sit and watch cricket, if you're my husband. Um, so there was this real sort of epidemic of loneliness amongst retired men in particular who found themselves without the structure of work anymore, without a sense of purpose and becoming really down and losing a great deal of confidence and really feeling quite lost. And so the Men's Shed was started, as I say, in Australia in response to this. And what was important was that it wasn't a pub. It wasn't about drinking. It wasn't about getting together and drinking. It was about getting together and doing something more constructive and talking, just talking, just hanging out and sharing how annoying your wife's being at home or whatever it is, but just, you know, getting things off your chest that we girls are quite good at, but blokes are not so good at. And then the, the movement started in the UK and some of them were started by um, charities like Age Concern or Mind, but many of them have just been started grassroots. Interestingly, I discovered it's usually wives that sort of start them. <laughs> <laughs> to the house was, why don't you start a men's shed? And this particular one was was just this fantastic group of men. And there was a man I met there called John, who was in his in his mid eighties, and he'd lost his wife Carolina six years before, and he couldn't even say his name without just weeping absolutely weeping and everybody around him you know all these men of all different ages there's some in their 60s and and he was the oldest as 80 84 or 85 and you know they were they were all sort of gently kind of teasing him but in the kindest way and and he said well i'm a bit useless you know i come here there's nothing i can do you know graham he he builds furniture and you know somebody else makes cakes and i just sit here and they say yeah but you're funny john you're funny you tell great stories <laughs> and, and he had been prescribed antidepressants after his wife died uh, by a doctor and he just didn't want to take them he didn't want to go down that route and he went to see another doctor who said you're lonely that's the thing, you are lonely. I know you're, he'd been an ex-copper, his community loved him, but that's not the same. He needed somewhere to go and talk and just be with other people uh, who weren't gonna judge and who were just, they were just gonna hang out together. And he said, he said, you know, this old lot here, he said, they've saved my life, Kate. They've absolutely saved my life. And it was just, 
the say it was such a simple thing, just a place that people could meet and have tea and, you know, a wife would make a Victoria sponge. You know, what was also lovely was then the community, in this particular case, Graham was an amazing, he'd been a cabinet maker as, uh, when, he was, when he was working, and the local primary school said, we need benches for our kids and could you make them and graham said yes and so he said well i'll make them but i'm going to teach some of the lads <laughs> all in their 70s um to help make them too and and so you know people were learning they were discovering new skills they were doing something really tangibly useful for the community that they could then walk past you know the local park and say we made those benches there it was just a lovely way for these gentlemen to feel part of something to feel rooted in their community not like a little piece of flotsam and jetsam that that didn't quite know where they fitted because they'd stopped working no i thought it was a very very moving chapter it was one of the ones i enjoyed most and i love the idea of these men i think it's it's a charming thing and i think it's really proved just the worth of community and how important it is that that doesn't break down it's amazing, isn't it, what these community endeavours do. Thank you so much to Kate Humble and to Polly Pullar for those excellent questions. And don't forget, you can get a copy of Kate's book, A Year of Living Simply, from our website, bookshop.wigtownbookfestival.com. And from Men's Sheds to International Espionage Now, Lee Randall spoke to Simon Conway at one of our working lunch sessions. So, over to Lee. Simon is a former British Army officer an international aid worker who currently works as the Director of Capability for the HALO Trust. Now that's a charity that removes the debris of war and especially landmines around the world. He saw active duty in the British Army, after which he spent four years in the Peak District and then on Isla. Um, and he has a connection to the local area living not that far away from Wigtown itself. His first novel, Damage, was described by the Literary Review as a debut of a roaring and prodigal talent. And then in 2010, he won the CWA's Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award for a Loyal Spy. So his new novel is called The Stranger. It's a fast-paced thriller, and it finds MI6 agent Jude Lyon in a race against time to get to the bottom of a plot to launch a devastating act of terrorism on the UK. It tackles a number of timely issues, including rendition, the radicalization of young British Muslims, refugee camps, government cover-ups, and terrorism. The action takes us from London to Syria to Jordan, back to the English capital, and pits Jude against a really, really frightening evil genius who's rigidly focused on carrying out his horrible and deadly plans. So I wanted to ask you um, a sort of general question to kick off, because whenever I read a spy novel, it reminds me that in addition to all the things we know the government is doing, there's a hell of a lot of paddling underwater, like the mad ducks and swans, you know, who look so serene on the top. And I'm wondering, having had the jobs you've held, how has that helped inform your books, and especially this book? Where I'm fortunate in, in that my job with Halo involves setting up new programs getting into new places and, and during the course of the last five years i've predominantly been in the middle east so so syria iraq yemen uh, and i'm on my way to libya i should be in there by sunday so i've sort of been involved in these places at these times 
you know, during and, and post-conflict and, and getting into them, often at the same time as our intelligence services themselves have been trying to sort of find out what's going on or learn learn what's going on. So I'm so in in a, in a sense I'm 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 privy to the same kind of information or some of the same kind of information. Obviously I'm not privy to any kind of communication intercepts. But the ground truth often actually I have a better sense of than these people um, be, be, just because having the kind of access that I do and I suppose possibly because my organization has a sort of greater appetite for risk often than, than government departments do I actively in my role working for an NGO I have to be quite careful about not associating too much with intelligence officers and 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 so you know one does come across people now and then but 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 you kind of it's quite careful to maintain a distance frankly but but obviously a, a sort of distance where you're watching what's going on mm-hmm. um, for my evening and weekend job writing books. Some of this book has been inspired by true events hasn't it? The book opens with a man called Nasruddin Al-Rakar who, who is a a, uh, a suspect in a, in a really devastating attack uh, that, that that happened in, in in Basra in 2004 that results in the death of 25 British servicemen. And there's two faxes, two redacted faxes for the reader to, to see, and and they refer to the rendition of Rakar who, uh, of Nasruddin. Nasruddin is picked up in. Karachi and rendered to Damascus because because back at that time, you know, the Assad regime was was considered to be our friends. It was it was Glasnost in Damascus. I think is is how I decided it. You know how I described it. And, and Assad was a gentle orthodontist with a British wife. And, and of course, he's turned out to be one of the great you know brutal murderers of the of the of the of the century. But Nasruddin rendered. And then broken out. He's broken out. So the open the book opens with this terrorist suspect being broken out of a of a Syrian interrogation center where he spent ten years in the basement. And and he's broken out by a gang who who've been doing prison breaks across Iraq and Syria, and then selling the the prisoners that they free, they sell them onto Islamic State, who then utilise them. So, and this is all to do. I mean, this is the sort of thing that goes on, or there was going on, certainly in the height of of Islamic State control of Iraq and, and Syria. There were marauding gangs breaking people out of government prisons and and and, and sell, send, selling them on to the jihadis. So, I tried to sort of work on that basis, and then the actual rendition of Nasruddin and his wife, who in the book is seven months pregnant, parallels a real rendition which was Abdul Haq Belhaj and his pregnant wife Fatima Bouchard, who were rendered from Bangkok to Tripoli and Libya. So it's, it, it has echoes of a real event. And, and that real rendition ended up with the Prime Minister Theresa May apologising to Belhaj and his wife for what was, you know, essentially an illegal act when there was no real evidence that Belhaj was responsible for any terrorist crimes. And, and um, without giving too much away of my book, mm-hmm. similarly, um, it becomes clear that uh, Nasruddin is a pawn in a much larger game. One of the things that I, while I was reading this, um, you get very invested. I got very invested in Jude and what would happen to him. And I kept, the book seemed to close in on me. I got a sense of extreme claustrophobia that here was a man who couldn't trust anyone you know, because his life depended on it. One has that sense about spy books is that the world closes down even while you're out in the world. And is that something that is just endemic with the job? Is that what the job is like? I think I think 
to some extent that's a device of the of the of the genre you know yeah. i mean it, it's my intention to make it tense and claustrophobic okay and and i like you know i've always liked the kind of nuances of not really knowing who you who you can trust but it it's certainly true that we you know we live in this remarkable time when you know we have this all-powerful technology when you know we really don't have any idea who's listening in to what we do and you know we all know from the amount of spam that we get and attempts by people to get our information off us that it's, it's not just governments that are monitoring what we're doing it's criminal gangs and everyone else and they're just you know they're throwing those nets very widely and trying to hoover everything up and I think that yes the more you the more you think about that, and then, of course, you know, I'm, the the subject matter I'm writing, I think, I think, I think, claustrophobia and tension are sort of they're the result, and certainly they are what I'm aiming for. The other thing, you know, sort of the other side of that coin for me was also one has these tremendous bursts of adrenaline. You know, the the n- amount of cortisol and adrenaline that must go through on both sides of the equation, and I'm just wondering what that does to a person, and and certainly I. I I don't know if your military background is any can shed any light on that either. I mean, living at at such a high level for so long. Yes, I think. I mean, I think you you know you, you we all try to find coping strategies for for how you how you deal with that. But it's certainly, I would say it takes a it does take a toll on on Jude on on Jude Lyon, who's the central character. He has his obligatory uh, counselor who who he can talk to, although he trusts her as little as I think she trusts him. Uh, I spends most of his time sort of obfuscating, but I think in the case of Jude, he's found a sort of some degree of of, of peace within um, you know physical activity. He's, he does a martial art, um, and that gives him something. And then also, he's you know he's a, he, by training he's an art historian, and I think there's a the, the book one of the one of the opening chapters of the book is is it set in the in the National Gallery of Scotland, and he's standing in front of a painting, and and I think there's a sort of there's a kind of peace there and, and certainly i know that in my work i find peace in you know reading books in going to art galleries and and and, and trying not to think about various conflicts for a bit well jude very he struck me very much as a man who's questioning what he does and how he does it which gives him a lot of depth as a character i suppose i had a i had in mind i mean i've had various characters in my books and i, and I had in mind to create a character that I wanted to stick with for a while. It seemed to me that 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 you know having that questioning capacity was was something that I can now continue to explore beyond the stranger. So I think we'll we'll, we'll probably hear more from Jude. I read an interview that you gave to the National where you said I've become really interested in the way terrorism works in a free market economy according to the law of supply and demand. Can I get you to um, expand on that a bit. Yeah, so I'll, let me give you an example. I was I was in in Kobani in Syria in 2015, uh, and I crossed over from Turkey. And the city had uh, had been bombed very heavily, uh, and Islamic State had pulled that back, and they were about, I think they were about 20, 30 kilometers south of the town. So I went, I crossed over, which was quite unnerving because. Suicide bomber blown themselves up a couple of weeks earlier at the crossing point. But anyway, got through, met up with some people there, and we went and had a look. And the, the place was rigged with improvised explosive devices, and they were being cleared, and a lot of them were being put in a in a in a quarry. They were basically big 
jars full of ammonium nitrate and aluminium paste. So the ammonium nitrate, the stuff that went off in Beirut, uh, mixed up with an aluminium paste to make it more fierce and uh, nine volt batteries, particular arrangement of wiring and a pressure plate to set them off. Two years later, I'm in Fallujah in Iraq. Um, you know, it's got an infamous city. And that is a completely ringed by IEDs. And the IEDs are exactly the same manufacture and design. Now, that's about 600 kilometers apart. Those IEDs were not made to, in, a, in a central factory. You know, they're, they're improvised explosive devices. They are, by their nature, improvised. And yet there was, there was a commonality of design, which suggested to me that there were factories probably the length of the Euphrates Valley that were, or not, maybe factory is the wrong word, workshops, so local workshops producing these things. So these are being produced on demand for Islamic State. At the same time, we know of reports, particularly from, from Pakistan, but also from Turkey, of certain madrasas producing disaffected young people uh, as suicide bombers and produce and uh, as suicides and providing them to these terrorist organisations, these these militant groups to then use them. So you know these kids often you know in Afghanistan we've seen a lot of, of orphans brought up in madrasas uh, in the tribal areas and then moved across the border and they end up being used as suicide bombers and and it's really not clear to what extent that they really understand what's happening. Uh, and certainly, they have no conception of the broader world. So, there's, so that's so, so that's that's things like being able to buy a suicide bomber on the marketplace. And the same thing goes, particularly. So, in Iraq, two thousand three, two thousand four, you saw um, vehicle chop shops that would that would uh, you know weld a weld a vehicle and fit it up so that a bomb could go in it, so it could become a vehicle-borne IED. And then the other thing is the financing, where you've got. Islamic State reportedly having several hundred million in cryptocurrency holdings because all the oil that was being sold in that 2012-2014 period, all of that was that was just money going into Islamic State coffers. Antiquities were being sold as well. So you've got you've got money being generated there in cryptocurrency holdings, and then you've got these different informal means of terrorist groups buying in the resources that they need in order to be able to undertake terrorist attacks and that keeps them leaner you know it keeps them leaner and smaller they don't have to create these massive organizations so you see the thing mutating and there's a really excellent book by a guy called john robb called brave new war which which talks about a lot of a lot of this stuff but it, it you know i've certainly seen you know i've seen evidence of it and and i've and, I, and i've read about it as well and i and i think it, it it's quite worrying for the future because you begin to realize you know, particularly with things like the dark web, that that actually, and this, you know, in the latter parts parts of the, of the stranger, you'll see this the the extent to which you can actually get from the internet uh, the ingredients for almost anything you want. I mean, you know, you you can build a bomb from the internet. Yeah, as as the book progresses, it's one is more and more gripping it more and more rigidly with, with tension and fear, um, partly because of this attention. I mean, anyone listening to you speaking right now, you know your stuff, you know, these details. If an author gives me enough detail, as you did, I'm willing to follow them wherever they go. So if they then tell me something that they've made up, that's fine because I'm, I'm in their zone. 
That is the power of fiction, isn't it? That suspension of disbelief, especially when the author so expertly adds in their detailed knowledge of their subject. Thanks so much to Simon Conway and to Chair Supremo Lee Randall. And do consider getting a copy of Simon's book, The Stranger, from our website. And of course, don't forget, you can catch the full versions of these events over on our website. I hope we've whetted your appetite here. Uh, So you can catch them there or on our YouTube channel. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed revisiting some more highlights from this year's festival. But until the next time, take very good care of yourselves. Bye-bye for now.